our Bibles tonight, if you would please, and we'll open them to the book of Joshua, chapter 24. We're coming down to the close of our series of Joshua. Uh, Just one more sermon, which will be next Sunday night, and we'll be finished with this. And tonight we're looking at the final chapter and Joshua's address to the entire congregation of Israel. There were two addresses that Joshua made in the end of his life. Last week, as we were studying Uh, We talked about the address that he made to the elders and to the leaders of the people. But here we find Joshua with all of the people gathered together, and he makes an address to the entire congregation. And this takes place at Shechem. I hope you remember this place called Shechem, because that was where Moses originally told Joshua to bring the children of Israel uh, right after they came into the Promised Land. He told them to meet there. And it's an area where there's actually a a natural amphitheater between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And if you remember, this is the place where they brought the Ark of the Covenant right after they entered into the land. And there, uh, blessings were given from Mount Gerizim and curses were pronounced from Mount Ebal. So the people here are gathered once again and Joshua is now at the end of his life and he makes his farewell speech to the nation. And the main thrust of this, of this speech that he gives is to encourage the people to remain faithful and true to the God who brought them into this land. And he tells them if they will do that, then God promised that this land would be forever theirs. Now this evening, we're not actually going to read the entire address that Joshua made, but we're going to concentrate mostly on the encouragement that he gives the people to serve God. I'd like you to stand, if you would, please, as we read God's Word. We're going to begin at verse number 14. And the preceding verses up to this point is a recitation of Israel's history up to this point. So Joshua tells them all about that, and he began with the promise that was made to Abraham. He follows the history up to the time that he's speaking, and then he begins in verse number 14. And he says, Now, therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which our fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. And everybody knows this next part of the verse. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way wherein we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drave out from before us all the people, even the Amorites which dwelt in the land, Therefore will we also serve the Lord, for he is our God. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for he is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you. After that he hath done you good. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye are witnesses against yourselves that ye have chosen you the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. 
Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of this word tonight. Lord, we just ask you once again to open our hearts to the teaching of your word. Help us to learn something more about what a great God that you are and so much that you've done for us. And we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It shouldn't be very difficult for us to understand Joshua's conclusion in verse number 14. He says, Now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And we notice there the word therefore, that's the transitional word. And that's what connects us to the first part. And in that part, he says, therefore, because of what God has promised, because of the mighty works that God has done to bring you in this land, then he's your Lord and you are to serve him. Now, if you haven't already done so, at some point, I'd like for you to read those first 13 verses. And if you would, just take a moment to compare that to what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin, and he's giving a defense, and he did much the same thing that Joshua did right here. He recites the history of Israel. But there's one thing that Stephen knew. He knew much more than Joshua because he knew what happened after Joshua made this speech. Now, Stephen, of course, lived at a much later time, He knew the history of Israel very well, and so he was able to say something about Israel that happened after the time of Joshua. Now, the history of Israel up to this time was that they served God, then they rejected God, they served God again, they came back to him, but then they rejected God. Time after time, Israel went through this. So God sent prophets to them to warn them and to turn them back. So by the time that you come to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, Stephen has to say to those people, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Now Joshua, of course, is prior to that time. And he doesn't yet know what Israel is going to do, but he gives this speech as an encouragement for them not to do what they actually did do after Joshua died, sometime afterward. Now, I want you to notice in verse number 19 again that Joshua says, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. That introduces the first area of discussion for tonight. First of all is the difficulty of serving God. He says, You cannot, you cannot serve the Lord. What does Joshua mean by that? You cannot serve the Lord. I've read various explanations of this, and, but what I think that best fits the overall teaching of God's Word is that what Joshua is actually saying, that it's impossible for anyone to serve God unless God permits it. Man doesn't really have this natural ability to serve God. The scripture teaches that there is none righteous. It says that we're all gone out of the way. None of us seek after God. It says that we are desperately wicked. We're deceitfully wicked. We're depraved creatures. Dead in trespasses and sin, the word says. And so without the enabling power of God, there is not one person who could ever serve God. We don't want to serve God. There is no desire to serve God. Neither will we serve God. Now, it's very interesting that there was a highly religious man that came to Jesus one night, and this man uh, was a ruler of the Jews, the Bible says. 
He was very well-versed in the Scriptures. He knew the laws of Moses. He was a very moral man. And for most people to look at him, they would be absolutely convinced this man is as saved as any person could ever be. Now, we all know who that man was. He was Nicodemus. The Bible talks about him coming to Jesus. But when Nicodemus saw all the miracles that Jesus did, he said, you are a teacher that's sent from God. And yet he didn't understand fully in his heart what it took to be saved. And so Jesus told him that no man could see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. What he said was an operation has to take place in a person's heart. I mean, a man's soul has to be changed. There has to be something different about him. He has to be enabled to see in order that he can see God, in order that he can worship him. And so he must be regenerated. He has to be born again. And just as a man cannot naturally give birth to himself, neither can a man give spiritual birth to himself. This is all God's doing. So I believe that when Joshua said, ye cannot serve God, he was telling these children of Israel, don't be so cocky about this. Don't think that you can do this in your own strength and in your own power. Only God gives you the ability to serve him. It's only because of God's divine power that comes upon you that you can ever serve God. Friends, you don't have to look very hard in the Old Testament to find here the doctrines of grace. It's written here everywhere. It's around every corner. Now, I want you to notice again that the word Lord in verse number 19, do you see that? It's all in capital letters. That means that Joshua is using the name of God that says that he is Jehovah, that says he is the great I Am. He's the eternally existent God. There aren't any other gods that stand before him. We're talking here about Almighty God. And not serving him puts man into an aggravated state of condemnation. Serving God is very difficult because the demands of God are difficult. He's not like any other God. And so we notice here what Joshua says about him. He says he is an holy God. Well, why is serving Jehovah God so difficult? Let me give you some reasons. Reason number one is because he is holy. That's what Joshua says. He's holy. And holy in that context means perfect. It means spiritually pure. We wouldn't have any trouble at all serving God if we had no sin. Isaiah said it this way, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. The angels and the seraphim in heaven who guard the the holiness of God, they have no trouble at all saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. They have no trouble saying that because... Those angels have been preserved in perfection. They have no sin. And so they can come into the presence of God and they can speak the name of God and they can say that he's holy. But this is extremely difficult for those of us who are sinful men. When Isaiah stood in the presence of God and he heard those seraphim say those very words, he recognized that he had a problem. And he said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I'm undone, a man of unclean lips. So we wonder then, how could this tongue, how could the mortal tongue of man, sinful tongues, say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty? How could we do that when our mouths are unclean? And the answer is, we can't do it. It's hard to serve God because God demands perfection. He's repulsed by sin. Sin is vulgar in his sight. He will not permit it in his presence. And so what are we going to do? How is it that we can actually serve God? He's holy. Well, there's only one way that we can come to him. 
We must plead the blood of Jesus Christ. We have to be washed clean in His blood. Our sins have to be removed. And there's only one way that we can stand in the presence of God. And that's to have the righteousness of Christ upon us. It's to have His merits and none of our own. And so a man who comes into the presence of God is utterly foolish when he comes there with his self-righteousness. God will not permit us there. Ye cannot serve the Lord. You can't do it unless you've been washed in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. He is holy, and you can't serve him without holiness. But then Joshua goes on. Not only does he say that God is holy, he is jealous. He's a jealous God. God never accepts a divided heart. And so God is not going to accept some service to him and some service to another God. God is not going to permit you to worship with an idol, whether it's an idol made of stone or an idol that's, that's made of wood, or whether it's a God of self. Jehovah God is not going to accept divided loyalties. And so this is why Joshua says in verse 15, Choose you this day whom you will serve. So Joshua says, you have two choices here. Either it's Jehovah God, or it's the gods of Abraham's ancestors before the promise. It's the God of the Amorites, or it's Jehovah God. It's one or the other, and it can't be both. Elijah made the very same appeal many years later on Mount Carmel. There was a contest that, that took place between Jehovah God and Baal. Now, Israel had been through those series of ups and downs, serving God, rejecting God, serving God, rejecting God. Finally, they have this showdown on Mount Carmel with Elijah, uh, the prophet of God, and the prophets of Baal. And Elijah declared at that time, he says to the people, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. See, there aren't any other choices. And Jesus said the very same in Matthew 12, verse 30. He said, he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. So here we are. There, there's no such thing as straddling the fence in this issue. Either you must be for him or you're against him. You're for Christ or against Christ. Now, you have many people that are in favor of religion. Religion's fine with them. I mean, they like to get along, and they're pleased with that. They can coexist with religion. But, folks, that is not enough. You're either for him or you are against him. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either on your way to heaven or you're on your way to hell. There isn't any other way. And then there are many Christians that they also want to divide their loyalties, whether it's among family or friends or whether it's the job, whatever it might be. God is still not pleased with divided service. Jesus said in Matthew 10, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Then he said in Matthew 22, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And do you know that Joshua could well have spoken those very same words to the children of Israel? Because what Jesus was doing was quoting the law of Moses. God is a jealous God. It's difficult to serve this God because he never accepts divided loyalties. It's either him or it's nothing. And if you're not a friend of his, then you're an enemy of his. Now, thirdly, he is difficult to serve because he is unforgiving. 
Now you say, well, hold on just a minute, Pastor. How could you say that God is unforgiving? God is forgiving. God is a forgiving God. The Bible tells us God always forgives us. Well, you're the one that needs to hold on because I need you to understand this. God is a forgiving God, except when we hold sin in our hearts. Sin is a great divider. Sin is what separates us from God, that what keeps us from Him. And whenever you decide to hold on to sin... God tells us he will not look past that sin. He will not have fellowship with you. I've labored in many messages to try to explain to you the difference between relationship and fellowship. When you become a child of God, you always have a relationship with God. Once you become a son of God, you're always a son. You never lose that. But what you can lose is the fellowship with God. Here's what David said. If I regard iniquity in my heart the Lord will not hear me. David had a sense of this, that he lost fellowship when he sinned. And so now Joshua tells the people in verse 19, he will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. In other words, he's saying, God will not tolerate your idolatry. You can't go on thinking that you can serve those other gods and still enjoy the protection of God and still enjoy this land as your land. God will not permit it because he's not going to overlook that sin. He will not forgive that, and he'll chastise you for it. You'll suffer for it, and the judgment of God will fall on you. So God is unforgiving in that sense. So it's hard. It's difficult to serve God because it's always God or nothing. Now, let's go on because Joshua points out not only the difficulty, but also in his words, there is the demand to serve God. We find this demand in verse number 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. So Joshua presents the demand of God. And he does that after that long discourse in those first 13 verses. There he outlines everything that God has done for Israel. And now he says, you need to make some choices here. Who are you going to serve? And so he points out some reasons why they should serve God. And so he starts with this, I believe. You serve God because of grace. That's first. Serve him because of grace. Moses told the people before they entered into the land, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. Now I want you to notice the word choose in that verse. God chose Israel but not because they were the finest specimens of mankind that he could find. He did not choose Israel because Abraham was a follower of God, because Abraham wasn't. Abraham was an idolater. There was no reason that God should choose Abraham. He saw nothing in him at all. We look at the history of Israel. If God had chosen Israel because he foresaw something, you know what he would have foreseen? He would have foreseen this rejection of him. Would he have seen Israel tenaciously holding on to the commandments, obeying all of God's laws? He wouldn't see that. He sees rejection. He sees disobedience. He sees idolatry. He sees the whoredom of Israel. And finally, he does see wholesale rejection because he even sent his own son among the people of Israel and they rejected him. That was the most precious gift that God could give. So Israel cannot look to themselves. They can't say, God chose me because of who I am, what we've done. We're a great people. Because they absolutely were not. And so they can't look to themselves. They have to look to something in God himself. 
God had something in him that caused him to do it. And what is that? Mercy, love, and grace. That's what caused God to choose Israel. And do you know, friends, that is the same for every person in this room tonight? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's only because of the mercy, love, and grace of God. It's the sovereign grace of God to unworthy sinners. So I can't think of a better reason why you ought to abandon all other things. Why should you wholeheartedly serve God? Do it because of God's grace. And that's because it's God's good pleasure to save you. And then I believe that Joshua tells them to serve God. He says, do this because of gratitude. Joshua lays out the case for God. He says, weigh the evidence. What is it that God has done for you? He brought you out of Egypt. When it looked like that you were going to be killed by the Egyptians, what did he do? He brought you through the Red Sea. When it looked like that you were going to die in the wilderness, what did he do? He protected you from your enemies. When all of these things were going wrong, it was God that fought for you. When Balaam came to curse you, God prevented it. When you came to the Jordan, God led you through the water. When you came to the walls of Jericho and it was impossible for you to win that battle, God knocked down the walls of Jericho. When you needed miracles, when you needed pestilence, God brought it and God used it and God did it all. And so Joshua rehearses all of those things in this speech at the beginning of the chapter. And now Joshua says, consider it all and then decide, should you serve God? Do you owe it to him? Is there a debt of gratitude that you owe God? Serve him because of gratitude. You know, it's a, really a shame that we have so many ungrateful Christians. Look at what God did for you in saving your soul. Is it too much now for you to serve him? Do you think that what you ought to do now, that you spent too much time serving God, so sit in that pew, don't do anything, let others do the work? You spent too much time serving God. What about giving your tithes and your offerings? You spent too much money giving your tithes and offerings. So now it's time for you to hold on to those. Keep it for yourself. How much has God done for you? Weigh it all out and then come to your conclusion. Do you know that Paul did exactly that? He presented a very similar argument. If you look in the book of Romans, you'll find there that in the first chapters of Romans, Paul lays out all the things that God does by his marvelous grace. What he did in justifying us by faith. What he did by preserving us and all the things that God has done for us. And everybody knows what the conclusion was. You come down to chapter 12 and everybody knows what Paul said. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your uh, bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, you notice what Paul says? This is reasonable service. This is exactly what you ought to do because of what God has done. So he says, look at what God has done for you. And now can God say, I'm asking too much of you? And the conclusion is, absolutely not. You can never match what Jesus Christ did for you. No matter what you give back to him, you'll never match what he did for you. And this is exactly what Jesus said. You know, he says, Likewise ye, when ye shall have done all these things that are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. So you think about it. And you make your decision. Is God asking too much? And Joshua makes a good argument. 
He went to God's school, and he didn't come out a history major for nothing. He figured it all out. He says, I've looked at the evidence. I've seen what God did. And you know what my conclusion is? We all know it. What is it? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the conclusion. Now, that leads me to the last observation. The people heard this. It's convincing. And so next we see the determination to serve God. So the people hear the argument. They listen to Joshua's warnings. Now, he says in verse 20, If ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you. After that, he hath done you good. Now, I think as Joshua said that, he must have remembered all of those experiences, all the things that took place in the wilderness. He and Caleb, they're the only adults that made it all the way through that experience. They're the only ones that actually came into the promised land. Joshua ends up leading the people into, into Canaan. They crossed the Jordan. But the rest of those people, they died in the wilderness because of unbelief. So Joshua is very aware, very much aware of what these people are prone to do. Israel, the people of Israel, they often talked a good game. They said, we will serve him. They, they talked like they would. But whenever push came to shove, they turned their backs on God. They started crying and complaining. So Joshua knows what they're prone to do. But at least for right now, what do they say? We are determined to serve God. Verse 24, And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. Now, when you're determined to serve God, what is it that you do? First of all, when you're determined to serve him, it must be by choice. Now, I think that there are many people that are confused by our doctrine. They, they think that because we believe that God chooses for salvation and that God works beneath the consciousness of man to regenerate him in order that he might express repentance and faith, that somehow that's God forcing something on us. One a local preacher rejects the terminology sovereign grace altogether. And he says, well, that means that God forces his grace on you. Therefore, it can't be grace. And I hope with that kind of reasoning, you understand why you're here and not there. When God works in the heart, he regenerates so that you can make a choice. You know, I think people are totally confused on this. When you are unregenerate, the Bible teaches that you are a slave to sin. You're a slave with a depraved will. Paul says, unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. So when you're lost, you can call it a choice if you want to, but the only choice that you make is to choose sin. You can't choose otherwise. So Jesus said, and ye will not come to me that you might have life. And he says, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So there's the extent of your choice. You will never choose God. But what happens when God regenerates? When he makes you able to make a choice? What happens when your mind has been illumined to the grace of God and the mercy of God, what choice is it that you make when your eyes have been opened to the gospel of Christ? I mean, when you really come down to understand that hell is real and heaven is your alternative, what choice do you make when God opens your eyes? You only make one choice. The reason, man, when God works upon the mind, he chooses Jesus Christ. And that's because he's been regenerated. He's been enabled to make that choice. So when you see clearly, you gladly come to Christ. God's not forcing anything on any of us. 
We come to Him gladly because we recognize what He's done for us now. So God never forces grace. Matthew Henry said, Religion has so much self-evident reason and righteousness on its side that it may safely be referred to every man that allows himself a free thought either to choose or, or refuse it. For the merits of the cause are so plain that no considerate man can do otherwise but choose it. The case is so clear that it determines itself. Now, I don't want to misrepresent Matthew Henry's intent in that quote. He was actually talking about a person who's already saved, someone who's already a believer, and he says when you lay this all out before that person, the reason choice is to follow God. You can't make a different choice than that. Now, we can still apply the very same thing that he says to a person in the unregenerate state when Christ comes to him, when the Holy Spirit begins to convict his heart, because in a flash, just like that, it's simultaneous, but this is what happened. His thinking that was now in bondage to sin has now become free. And so as Matthew Henry says, no considerate man can do otherwise but choose it. The case is so clear, it determines itself. How will you serve God? Well, when you're determined to serve Him, the next thing is it must be in sincerity and truth. Verse number 14 says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. What that means is there, there, there can't be any mixture of hypocrisy in this. Uh, there can't be a mixture of human reasoning that goes along with this so that a man decides, well, I'll mix in my feelings and what I think. I'm not quite sure if what God says, if all that God says is to be obeyed. I'm not quite sure if there isn't something in the Bible that can be mitigated or left out, omit something. I'm not so sure that we can't do that. But the Bible says that if we're going to worship God, we must worship Him in pure truth. And it's the truth that's revealed in the Word. Now, if modern Christianity had been known to Joshua, then he wouldn't hesitate to say the very same thing to people today who call themselves Christians. Because most Christianity is not truth without admixture. In fact, in many churches today that call themselves Christian, they don't even believe that the Bible's the Word of God. They don't believe that Scripture is infallible. And this is our only source of truth. Well, Joshua looked at the law that was given by Moses because that's all that he had at that time. And in the law, he found truth. And in that law, he found perfect instructions on how to worship God. It's all in detail in the law. In verse number 26, we see that Joshua is actually adding to the law. God's adding through him. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. So Joshua's writing Scripture now. And for 1,500 years, Scripture continued to be written, and then Scripture stopped. In Revelation 22, 18, the Scripture says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Now that verse refers specifically to the book of Revelation. But John Gill rightly points out about this, that this is a warning to anyone who decides that they're going to add or take away from any part of the Word of God. When God was finished revealing Scripture in the Old Testament, the very last words that were written there, Scripture was done. And that means that we don't go beyond it, and we don't fall short of it. We don't leave anything out of it. 
But modern Christianity doesn't worship God, so-called Christianity, I should say, because they don't worship in sincerity and truth. They mix in man's philosophies. They bring in man's precepts and add them to the Holy Word. Well, absolutely, Joshua says to the people of Israel, you can't bring in some kind of pagan worship here. You can't mix what you think things ought to be in your worship. And folks, neither can we. And whether it's the Jews of Jesus' time that added to the laws of God through the Mishnah or the oral traditions that they put in, whether it's that or whether it's Roman Catholicism today that adds traditions and all of their teachings to the Word of God and all the practices that they have, God does not accept that. It has to be in the Bible, the Bible alone. So your determination to serve God, no matter how sincere you are, no matter how much you think that you can do this and you can add things to it and make it your way, God absolutely will not accept it because it's governed, worship is governed solely by the truth of the inspired and fallible Word of God. And so when Joshua says, choose you this day whom you will serve, he only means one thing. Either you choose the false gods, you worship them, or you worship this God that's revealed in Scripture. You worship Him. And really, when it comes down to it, if you don't worship in spirit and truth, anything that's added to that, and I'm sorry, I don't know if anybody's a Roman Catholic tonight or a Mormon or Jehovah Witness or whatever you are, if you add anything to the Word of God, it amounts to nothing more than worshiping a false god because it is not the God of the Scriptures. So this is Joshua's last speech that he makes to the people. He makes an impassioned plea. And he tells them about the difficulty of serving God. This is not easy service. The demand to serve God. It's a reasoned choice that comes from an enlightened mind, one that's been illuminated by the Holy Spirit of God. And then it is a determination to serve God. And it must be serving God in spirit and in truth because God accepts no other way. It has to be in harmony with the revealed truth of God's Word. Now there's one other One other question that I need to ask for the end of the message. Ask yourself, and this is your last statement here, how will I serve God? And I promise you that if you bring to God all of your baggage and try to serve Him with that, it will never work. What you must do is you must leave everything at the foot of the cross. And then you have to do what Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And He says, Serve the Lord, love the Lord, with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. That's how you serve God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, for great truths that we learn in the Old Testament from your word that teach us so very clearly and so plainly how we must follow you and worship you in sincerity and truth. Bless our people tonight in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's